Amen. Great worship tonight, guys. Thank you so much. And thank you, Nicole and Nathan. So James chapter 1, we're continuing our series there, but I also want you to be turning to Ezekiel 28 and Genesis chapter 3. Ezekiel 28, Genesis chapter 3. In fact, to set up our passage in James tonight, I want to actually start in the book of Ezekiel. But before I do that, again, I want to go back because tonight's message is about the goodness of God. And I hope that after we've sort of done some some preliminary thoughts in some of these verses and passages that you'll understand why I started there to end the way we're going to end in James. Again, I want to remind you of these verses. I shared them before our worship tonight, but I want to give you the references in case you want to write these down. Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting, or his mercy endures forever, as some translations say it. Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the one who takes shelter in him, Psalm 34, verse 8. And then Psalm 145, verse 9. I said 147 earlier, I correct myself, 145 verse 9, the Lord is good to all, he has compassion on all he has made. Why is it important that we emphasize and understand and grasp and even embrace the goodness of God? Because everything good is either from God or found within God. If you take nothing else from the message tonight, take that with you because that's what James wants to talk to us about tonight when we get there. Everything good is either from God or found within God. There's nothing good outside of God, okay? Nothing. It's either coming from God that's good or it's found within him. In fact, the goodness of God is very prominent throughout the Bible, From beginning to end, the Bible starts out talking about the goodness of God in creation. When the Bible tells us in Genesis that God looked at everything he had made and he said it was not just good, it was very good. That's what God declared after he had created all that he had created. Later on in the book of Exodus, a fascinating passage Moses is interacting with God. He's having a conversation with God. And Moses, you know, I love this guy. He's, he's so bold, and he asks for some audacious things, and that's one of the things that God loves. And, and so Moses said, God, I want you to show me your glory. You know what God's response was? I will have all my goodness pass by you. You see, God's goodness is really the summation of all that God is. And so God's response is, I'll have all my goodness pass before you. By the way, another translation of that word goodness is beauty. God says, I'll, I'm just, I'll pass all my beauty by you for you to see. And then I love Psalm 23, verse 6. At the end of that great psalm where David writes, Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. Literally, God's goodness is running after us all through our life, you see. 
God's goodness, God's goodness. Well, why do I want to start in the book of Exodus chapter 28? And I need to get back there and find that myself. Well, Exodus 28 is one of the references in the Bible to what I believe is a description of the fall of Lucifer, whom we now know as Satan or the devil. And you might say, why in the world are we going to start there? Well, again, hopefully this will all make sense. I'll say it this way. It makes sense to me, but that doesn't mean it always makes sense to you. But I hope it does. I want you to go to verse 11 of Ezekiel 28. Now, oh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 28. Sorry. I know, I got a lot of scriptures running around in my head. Yeah, Ezekiel 28. Um, this is one of the instances in the Bible that is a double reference, meaning that when Ezekiel was asked by God to prophesy, he was prophesying about a literal earthly king or prince, the prince of Tyre. In fact, you see that in verse 2, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. But then later on, it is very obvious that he is now describing someone that is not of earthly origin, whose description is exactly what we know the Bible teaches about the origins of Lucifer, okay? In fact, it's also interesting that in verse 12, that this is addressed not to the prince of Tyre, that earthly ruler in verse 2, but now to the king of Tyre, sort of the one truly behind the other one, if you will. And notice what this prophecy or this description talks about. This is what the sovereign Lord says, and he takes us back into eternity past here through Ezekiel. He says, you were the sealer of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, obviously then. He wasn't referring to the prince of Tyre. The prince of Tyre was not in the garden of Eden. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, topaz, and emerald, the chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, the sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mounts were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. By the way, Lucifer is a created being. I placed you there with an anointed guardian cherub. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked about amidst fiery stones. You were blameless in your behavior from the days you were created until sin was discovered in you. I'm going to stop there. Why am I starting a message about the goodness of God describing the origin of Lucifer? Because I want you to see how good God was to Lucifer. I mean, when you see the description here of this being, God gave him so much. He had so many wonderful things that were part of his being and so many wonderful privileges to be able to be right there with the other anointed cherub that I believe was probably Michael and, and to walk on the mountain of God. I mean, in a sense, 
God is saying, you had a special place in my creation, and you were given special privileges, and you had a particular beauty about you, and all of that. In fact, I believe that here and other places it describes Lucifer, that he might have even been the leader of worship in heaven. Now, I say all that because the Bible says that as good as God was, all that God had given to Lucifer as that created being and all the advantages he had, it wasn't enough, was it? Because the Bible tells us that sin was discovered in him. Satan didn't even need to be tempted externally to fall. The fall came from within. I want you to keep that in mind. Satan never needed an external temptation to fall. His fall came from within. In fact, later on, it says in verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom on account of your splendor. Therefore, I brought you down to the ground, God said. All right? Now, turn with me back to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Because I think we need to understand, in a sense, some of where Satan came from in order to help us to understand what was going on in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan, appearing as a serpent, comes to Eve and tempts her. And I believe that when we read and we study the fall, not now of Lucifer, but of the human race represented in Adam and Eve, that it really all centers around the goodness of God and Satan casting doubt in Eve's mind and obviously to Adam's mind that God is good. It's never explicitly stated, but it's implied all over the conversation. In fact, I want you to see this with me here, and let's begin in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more shrewd than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And remember where this serpent came from. He was given so many things, but it wasn't enough. No matter what God bestowed upon him, God wasn't good enough. And that somehow Satan thought, I've got to find myself and, and something good for me outside of God, okay? And so he fell. Now, what's his strategy to us as human beings? The same thing. And that's why I wanted to start here, because I want us to keep that in mind as Christians. Satan's strategy is the same. Why? Because he deals with us for the same reason that he fell himself. You see, that's why he always is attacking not the greatness of God as much as the goodness of God, because that's why he fell, because he thought that there was something better outside of what God had already bestowed upon him and given him. And he comes to Eve with that same intent. He said to the woman, is it really true that God said you must not eat from any tree of the orchard? Well, let's go back. Go back to chapter 2, verse 15, and let's see if that's what God said. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and to maintain it. Then the Lord God commanded the man, notice, 
you may freely eat fruit from every tree of the orchard. God's basically saying, everything your eyes see, it's yours. You go after it. I'm giving you everything, but, verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. I'll give you all of this, all of it. I'm so good. I'll give you everything. There's only one tree I ask you to avoid. One out of everything else in the garden, just one. So notice then back in chapter 3, when Satan comes to Eve, he says, oh, I thought God said you must not eat from any tree. So why does he say that? Because he wants to begin to plant in Eve's mind, hmm, maybe God's not so good. Maybe God's holding out on us. And you see this develop throughout his conversation. The woman even says to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit from the trees of the orchard. So she got that right. But concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said you must not eat from it and you must not touch it. No, he never said that. Now she starts to get a little wonky, right? As far as what God said, you see? And you even wonder, is Adam partly to blame here? Why do I say that? Well, because Eve wasn't created when we read the words that we did back in chapter 2. Those were words that were given by God to Adam. So maybe Adam poorly communicated that word from God to his wife. Maybe he said, oh, we can't not only eat it, we, we can't even touch it. The serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die. Challenging the word of God. That's what Satan did in the garden. That's what Satan has always done throughout history. That's what Satan continues to do today. He challenges the word of God, its veracity, its integrity, its truthfulness. Remember that. But then he says this, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like divine beings who know good and evil. In other words, do you get then the implication there? He doesn't come right out and say to Eve, God's not good. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. But he's implying it by saying, God doesn't want you to eat from that because he's holding out on you. He knows that you'll be like him if you, that, that you'll challenge him, that he'll have a rival, and so therefore he wants you to avoid that. God's not good. And so when the woman saw the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, was desirable for making one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it, ate it and then gave it to her husband who also ate it, and there was the fall. And what does it center around? In spite of the fact that they could have lived throughout eternity, enjoying all this other stuff that God said, it's free, it's yours, enjoy it. They co concentrated on the one of maybe millions of others that God said, just avoid that one. 
Just avoid that one. And what was God doing? He wanted them to have the choice, as he does us, so that we will decide for ourselves, is everything good from God and found within God, or is there something better or something good outside of God for me? And every day, in a sense, you and I are faced with that test, that temptation throughout our life, even as followers of Jesus Christ. So with all of that, go back to the book of James. That's why I wanted to start there, because notice in James chapter 1, verse 13, James wants to, first of all, in our passage tonight, talk to us about temptation. And temptation is nothing more than being tempted or enticed by someone or something outside of God and thinking that there's something better for me or good for me outside of him. So in verse 13 of chapter 1 of James, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted or enticed to sin, I am tempted or beguiled by God. For God, first of all, cannot be tempted by evil. God literally lacks the very capacity to be enticed by evil or influenced by sin in any way. And he himself tempts or entices no one. So just like with Satan, Lucifer, back in Ezekiel, when people say, well, where did sin come from? Well, it didn't come from God. Sin originated within the heart of Lucifer. It was when sin was discovered within him. And why did that happen? Because Lucifer thought, hmm, even though God has given me all of this, all of these gifts, all of this privilege, all that he's given me, it's not enough. There's got to be something more outside of what I already have in God. And that's where sin comes in. And then Satan goes right into Adam and Eve and does the very same thing. Even though you've got this entire garden and you can spend all of eternity enjoying its fruit and its beauty and its pleasures and everything that God's given you, and all you've got to do is avoid one, it's not enough. It's not enough. No matter what God did, for Lucifer, for Adam and Eve, it wasn't enough. There has to be something more outside of God that will make me happy, that will fulfill me, that will satisfy me, that's better for me than what God is offering to me, what he's promised to me, or what he's already given me. That's where it all starts. That's where sin always starts. And that's where the temptation always centers in. Every one of us, we can boil every temptation down to this truth. Either everything good is either from God or found within God, or it's not. And everything that you and I battle with, it's either, okay, is this within God's parameters? Is this something that God brought into my life, or is this something I'm going after outside of him? It's one of, it's one of two things. So notice, James goes on to say, but each one is tempted 
when he is lured or drawn out or away and enticed, here it is, first of all, by his own desires. And where do they come from? Within our heart. Just like Lucifer, I, I don't, yes, we, we're tempted, but, but the temptation wouldn't have a draw to us if our heart was truly set and settled on the truth that I don't need anything outside of God. And if God doesn't bring it into my life, then it's not good. And if I'm going after something that is outside of God's parameters for my life, that's not good either. So my heart and my desires and my passions all going to be wrapped up in what God has already brought or what I know one day he's going to give me. Other than that, I'm good. It's only when inside of us we go, God, I, I appreciate all that you've done for me, but it's not enough. And this thing over here or that thing or that per whatever, I think that, that's what's really going to satisfy. That's what's going to make me happy. That, that's good. That, that's better than what you're offering me. And that's where it starts, inside, right here. That's why it's so important that we guard our heart and that we even as Christians learn to rest our heart in God and truly settle once and for all, God is good. And if God is good, I know that his word tells me he will withhold no good thing from those who follow him. So therefore, I just need to rest in God and I'm good. And that not only leads to being faithful to God and being obedient to God, it leads to contentment. Because again, I'm never looking outside of what God wants to bring into my life to satisfy me or fulfill me. It, it's all found within him. I never have to go outside of God for anything. Then he says, when desire, verse 15, conceives... When it plants the seed, it's fertilized and it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. A couple of things there. He's teaching us that sin is a process. I don't get to point this point, say, halfway down the alphabet right away. It's a one step, then another step, another step. It's a process. But the other thing he's telling us is that when it ends in death, he's saying sin is self-destructive which is why God, in his love for us, teaches us to love him and hate sin. Because God loves us so much, he's like, you realize you're destroying your own soul and your own life when you sin, just as Adam and Eve did, just as Lucifer did. You see, anything that we choose outside of God is going to hurt us. It's just the way God, it is. Now, James doesn't stop there. And, and one of the things I want to come back around to, because I said I want us to also study this book, always keeping in mind that James was the brother of Jesus and therefore grew up with Jesus. This is why I think the goodness of God is something so prominent in James's book, because even though James did not become a believer in Jesus Christ till after the resurrection, James, even especially looking back at that point, realized, I grew up 
with Jesus. And one of the things that always impressed me about him was he was always so good. He was always so good to his mom and dad, to his brothers and sisters, to everyone around him. I saw goodness personified in my brother Jesus because that's who God is. God is good. And I think that made an impression upon him. And he realized that even as he watched his brother Jesus grow up, he realized my brother is not looking for anything outside of God to satisfy him or fulfill him or make him happy. All I saw all my life growing up as his brother is that Jesus lived within the will of God, knowing that whatever God has for me in his will, that's good. And he saw that. And that made quite an impression and and an imprint upon James to the point where he wants to tell us about it as well and remind us about how important it is that we capture this concept and that we live every day saying, God, everything good comes from you and is found within you and that there is nothing good outside of you, period because that's the way Jesus lived. So James goes on to say, verse 16, based on all this, do not be led astray, my dear brothers and sisters. Notice again, he's not talking to people that don't have a relationship with God. He's talking to fellow believers. He's talking to Christians here. Do Christians struggle with accepting and embracing and, and resting in the goodness of God? Absolutely. Because even when God allows something to come into our life, a trial, pain, suffering, what is one of the first battlegrounds in our mind that we think? Well, God, if you're so good, why did you allow that? Why, did you make, why didn't you prevent that from happening or whatever? So God's goodness is always challenged throughout our life, even as Christians. So that's why James says, Don't get off course, brothers and sisters. Don't wander. Basically, be firm in your conviction on the goodness of God. And then he goes on with just a couple more verses. All generous giving, or as other translations have it, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now, let's stop there. That's important. Again, that's teaching us something, that everything good is either from God or found within God because the Word of God says all generous giving and every perfect gift is from above. By the way, the word perfect speaks about God supplying us with everything we need to fulfill our God-given purpose in this life. God will not withhold anything that you and I truly need to be a good and faithful servant. Nothing. And that everything we need to enjoy life and experience life at the highest level will come from God if we trust him. In fact, he goes on to describe God as the father of lights. Why? 
Because God wants to illuminate us. He wants us to live in his light so that we can see him for who he really is. He is a great God and he is a good God that we worshiped him about tonight and that everything good we would ever want is found within God. The darkness is out there trying to lure us out there saying, no, there's good out here. And we've got to say, no, no, I'm living within the light of God and I'm seeing things for what they really are. And I'm seeing God for who he really is. Is, and there's nothing out there that's going to draw me away because my God is all that I need and everything that he gives me is all that I need. That's why he tells us to walk in his light because it's that illumination that really shows things for what they really are, reveals things for what they really are, you see. At that moment in the Garden of Eden, darkness was creeping in. Even though there was this whole garden of light, it was beginning to plant doubts into the minds of Adam and Eve that God really was good. No, no, he was holding out on them. And then he goes on to say, God is not only the father of lights and divine illumination, he is also a God that never changes. There's no variation. In other words, he's not a fickle God or the slightest hint of change. He is the absolute only reference point for our life. Because everything else changes. Everyone changes. You don't know exactly where someone's going to be or what the situation is, but you always know, and in this context, you always know God will be good. God's never going to wake up, even though God doesn't go to sleep. You understand where I'm coming from. That God's going to wake up one day and go, I'm not going to be good today. No. God will always, God has always been good and God will always be good. And we can count on his goodness, as the psalmist says in Psalm 23, verse 6, pursuing us and running after us all of our days. Never going to change. Because God doesn't change in his character, in his nature. And then to give us an example of that, James says... <laughs> If we doubt how good God is, let's remember the new birth. That the plan that God had to redeem us and to save us wasn't our idea. And if it had been left up to ourselves, we would have died and went into a crisis eternity for all, for all, forever. No, God initiated it. We love him because he first loved us. He reached out to us. That's how good God is. He didn't leave us in that condition, although he could have. He reached out to us in love, sent his son to die on our behalf, did all that so that through his blood and perfect sacrifice, you and I could have an eternal relationship and fellowship with him through the gospel, the message of truth, that we would be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Literally a living example and evidence of the goodness of God. That's what it means to be a new creation. And next week, as we begin to dive into verses 19 and following, we're going to talk about what God wants to see in us as we cooperate in him to become this new creation.
Because anyone who's in Christ is a new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Old things are passing away, all things are becoming new. How does that take place? Well, God doesn't do it all. God did it all to save us, but God's not going to do it all for us to spiritually grow and become the new creations that he saved us to be. We've got to own some of that ourselves, and James is going to tell us what God needs to see in our lives in order for that to happen, that transformation to continue to take place. For we are God's workmanship, masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The first fruits. That's, I think, a challenge for us tonight from this passage, is not only to settle in on the goodness of God, but to remember that as one who has been living in all of our lives, his goodness, basking in it, being blessed by it every day, that we should be living evidences and living examples of his goodness to others around us. I think about what that means. I mean, obviously, I want you to apply that personally to your own life. But what does that mean to you in how you would live your life or what, what you would do to be, uh, say, a more of a living example and evidence of his goodness? Well, I mean, one thing is let's stop complaining. I think that's why God got so upset with his children in the Old Testament. Because what did they do after he saved them out of slavery in Egypt? They were griping and moaning and complaining and murmuring, the Bible says. After all God did, it wasn't enough. When you and I gripe and complain and murmur, what we're really saying, not just to ourselves, but what we're really saying to everyone around us, really is God's not so good. I mean, when we cut through the chase, that's really what we're saying. Because if God was good, we'd wake up every day saying, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Not, oh, woe is me. So it really requires us to sort of have an attitude check every once in a while on our hearts. If we're going to be a living evidence and a living example of the goodness of God, can people... And that's why, can I say, that worship and building a lifestyle of worship into our life is so important and and so necessary and, and essential? Because if we are living to worship the Lord, that means we are living to express to him our appreciation, our adoration, our gratitude, or whatever. If we are a worshipless believer, then we're somebody who's probably more in a, in a, in a situation where we're not content. We, we believe that there's something better for us outside of what we already have in the Lord Maybe God's holding out on us, and, and, and we don't wake up sort of counting our blessings every day. Instead, maybe we're more bemoaning the things that God hasn't done for us or hasn't given us rather than enjoying and embracing and thanking him for what we already have. I mean, let's face it. 
and I'm speaking to myself here tonight as well. If God, and we know he's not because he's good, but if God shut off his pipeline of goodness to us right now and never did one more good thing for any of us in this room, God has still done way more good for us than we ever deserve. Amen? That's where James is coming from tonight. Remember, my friends, everything good is either from God or found within God. You want a verse to memorize? If you haven't memorized it already, James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or hint of change. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being such a great and good God. And God, I pray tonight that we would just appreciate your goodness, that we would rest in your goodness, that we would be content in your goodness, that we would worship you for your goodness. Because, Lord, we understand what James is saying. The temptation is always there. To seek something good or better outside of you. And, God, may we use the scriptures we looked at earlier. The fall of Lucifer, after all you have done for him and the fall of Adam and Eve after all you gave them in the garden to remember, God, not to focus on what you tell us we shouldn't have because that's out of love for our own good. But help us to focus on what you do give us and what you have given us and what you promise us in the future that's literally right in our pathway. And God, I can't help as I'm praying to even think about the people right now in this room that in my life are treasures and gifts from you. That they represent to me your goodness to me every day. God, may we be awakened every day to your goodness in our life. These things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here tonight. See you next week.